Hello friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless. The project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you're new, then why not consider going right back to the very beginning and join us on this amazing five-year journey through the entire Bible. And if this is the first time you've arrived here, then it might be useful to know that there are full transcripts of each and every talk available in the episode notes of any audio version of the podcast. You'll also find links there with ways in which you can connect to the ministry and access further teaching resources. Hi there, welcome back to part three of season three and we're working together this time through the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been covering these opening 17 verses, the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus revealed right at the beginning of Matthew and asking the question, do you ever feel like you don't belong? Now you may remember in the last episode, I read the genealogy from these first 17 verses and I mentioned the fact that they fall into three separate sections. So Matthew tells us in verse 1, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now that's interesting because this was not his original name. It wasn't Abraham, it was Abram. But God changed his name to Abraham when he made a covenant, when he made a promise with him. So by Matthew choosing to use the name Abraham here, Matthew is drawing attention to the fact that he's talking about the fact that this person was the person that God made a covenant with. And thereby he's focusing not just on the person of Abraham, but the Abrahamic covenant, the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis. I don't know if you remember about that, if you were with us in season two. Well, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would give him land. And this land he would give to him and his descendants, beginning with his son. And then he said this, that it would continue through all the nations of the earth, through all his descendants, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed by it. So part and parcel of the promise God made to Abraham that day is that God would bless the whole world through Abraham's future family line. Now, if I had time, we could look at the book of Galatians, which makes this very clear for us. And this is the way that God did in fact send his son, who would be in the line of David to save our sins and to become the saviour of the world. So that's the basis of the statement, the promise made in Genesis chapter 12, that through him, Abraham, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. It applied in the New Testament in the coming of Christ, who is seen to die for our sins and who arose from the dead that we could be forgiven and have eternal life by simply trusting in him as our saviour. You see, that's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. And that's what this family tree is telling us, that Jesus is the direct descendant of Abraham. And as such, he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, which means 
He came, Jesus came, to die for sin and remove sin. Now with that in mind, and just taking a quick glimpse through the genealogy, we can notice that there are some very unusual things going on here in the choice of names listed in it. For example, in verse 3, in the middle of it, it talks about Tamar. And in verse 5, it mentions Rahab. And then at the end of verse 5, it talks about Ruth. Verse 6 talks about another woman who's described as the wife of Uriah. In other words, this is a veiled reference to Bathsheba. And then in verse 16, it it also points out that Joseph was the husband of Mary. So straight off, we can see there are five women mentioned in this genealogy. Now to mention any woman would be unusual because at that time, particularly among the Jews and everybody else at that time, women really didn't count. However, we shouldn't read this today sitting in the 21st century and get too judgmental about that because we need to remember women didn't even get the vote in the UK until 1918 and then only if they were over 30 and had property and it wasn't any better in America either. The vote didn't arrive for women until 1921. But back in these days, in society, women didn't really count and certainly no one would put their name in a genealogy. So the fact that we have one woman here is unusual, but the fact that we have five is not just unusual, it is highly significant. And when we look at the five, it gets even more interesting, because three of these five are guilty of gross sin. And along with that, one was even a Gentile, and you certainly wouldn't put a Gentile in a Jewish family tree. Think about them. Hamar, she deceived her father-in-law by presenting herself as a prostitute and as a result of that she had a son, Peraz, and he makes it into the list. This is a child who would today call it a legitimate child, yet he is still in the royal family line. Then there's Rahab. She actually was a prostitute. She was the one who lived in Jericho when Joshua and Caleb came to spy out the land. This was a woman who made her living as a professional prostitute. Bathsheba is also mentioned, well, sort of. She's just mentioned in verse 16 as the fact that she was the wife of Uriah. But also, she is seen to be an adulteress. Then there is Ruth, and she was a Gentile. She was a Moabitess, which means she was a Gentile and, according to the Mosaic law, was a heathen and was unclean. In fact, it says in the Torah, a Moabites could not be a member of the congregation of Israel for ten generations. So here we don't just have women, but we have women, most of whom are defined as sinful women of that day, and yet they are all seen here in the line of Christ, in the family line of the Messiah. Tamar, she committed incest. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Gentile outcast. They all came from lowly, some might say even sinful positions, and yet they form part of the highest royal line, the line of the eternal King, Jesus Christ. So this genealogy in our minds should actually be becoming more interesting. The fact that there are women in it, women who were thought of not having much value, yet still are being shown here to have a tremendous value, are really valuable to God.
The question that should raise in our minds is, is our value based on how we look, how we are positioned in society, or is our value something intrinsic that has been placed in us, put in us by God himself? For example, if I were to take a pristine £20 note and give it to you, would you be able to spend it? But then if I took the same note and scrunched it up so it had all kind of wrinkles on it, would it still have the same value? What about if I threw it on the floor and stepped on it and squashed my foot back and forward, rubbing it into the dirty floor? Is it still worth having? Does it still retain its value? I suspect many of you would still want that £20 note because you can see the note has what is called intrinsic value. With all its wrinkles, with all its marks, with all its stain and dirt, it still holds its value. And in a sense, that's what God has done for us. We are born with innate value because we are created in the image of God. But then life comes along and yes, we get creased. We pick up dirt, we pick up stains, sometimes because of our own mistakes and bad decisions and sometimes because of the evil acts of others. But then God comes along and he gathers us up and he puts us in his family. In fact, we are of such value he places us in the royal line of his son, Jesus Christ, part of the family of God. So if you feel like you're in a bit of a mess, maybe you feel you've been bashed up a bit, you may feel you don't fit in. Maybe you feel you don't fit in in your own family or perhaps in your job. Well, whatever, friends, let me tell you, you fit in the family of God. That's what this family tree tells us. Now, Matthew, he's saying, look, he comes from this family line, yet he is the son of David. He's a king. But it also tells us he's the son of Abraham. And as the son of Abraham, he is the one who will allow his people, those who have been brought into the family of God, to inherit all of God's promises. And they can do that because he saves sinners. He saves his people from their sin. One other thing, if you look at the beginning of the third section in verse 12, it says at this point the nation of Israel were taken into Babylon, which is a reference of course to the captivity. So in the first part he's the son of David, the second part he's the son of Abraham, but now it's getting down to the fact that following the captivity and the tracing the line through those generations, he will arrive finally as the son of Mary. Now, if you look at the whole list of the names, and I'm not going to take time to work through all the names, but there are a couple of things that you would see which we need to note. One is that there are our gaps. We know this because we have genealogies in the Old Testament and when we compare this one with them, we can see there are gaps. And also there are some names mentioned by Matthew that extend beyond the Old Testament through those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if it wasn't for this genealogy, this family tree, there was no way we could verify and make those links between the Old Testament and the New Testament lists. But the other thing we need to know is when he gets down to verse 16, he says, Jacob, that's another Jacob, by the way, was the father of this guy called Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. Now, this is an interesting choice of words in that he's not mentioned as the biological son of Joseph. 
The Messiah is not mentioned as the biological son of Joseph. Joseph is not declared to be the biological father of Jesus. Jesus is just the biological son of Mary, who is a husband who is called Joseph. All that means is simply this. Jesus Christ, who comes through the line of Abraham, is the legal heir to the throne of David, but as the son of Abraham is the inheritor also of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now Luke will also trace the line of Jesus and again bring up Joseph, but he also will avoid making any reference to his status as the biological father of Jesus. Because yes, Mary is Jesus's mother, but Joseph is not Jesus's biological father. One last thing. This concluding verse is verse 17, and it's an interesting verse, for it tells us, Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Now if you add these all together, you would get forty-one names, but do you notice he lists David twice and counts him twice? And Bible experts tell you that Matthew is deliberately arranging the list in this certain way so that it comes out with this figure. He's not trying to give us an exhaustive list. He's trying to give us a representative list that demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and that's the whole and the only terms of reference that Matthew is working with here. That's all that's going on here. As I said at the beginning, Matthew had a particular purpose when he wrote his gospel, and that purpose was to show that Jesus Christ was the son of David, and as such he is the king, and as the son of Abraham, he fulfills the perfect, and in fact completes, perfects the Abrahamic covenant. As far as we are concerned, the part of the Abrahamic covenant that he fulfills for us is the ability to atone for sin but not by animal sacrifice this time, as it was according to the Old Testament times. This time he comes to save sinners as the Messiah, the one who will lay down his life for many. And that's really, that's all about what's going on here. So the little question of why did he deliberately arrange it so that the names came out in groups of 14? And that's an interesting question. And I've heard all sorts of answers. And I'm not sure I know exactly the fullness of this, but I think the best answer and the one that many Bible experts believe is this. You see, in Hebrew, they didn't have numbers. Letters represented numbers. And if you take the letters in Hebrew of the name David, these letters add up to the number 14 when they're converted to the numerical code. And Bible experts have suggested that well, Matthew was simply using this as a way of highlighting the fact that this is indeed the son of David, and because of that, he is the king. As the son of Abraham, he came to save sinners, which ties in with the fact that the list of names from people of different backgrounds are seen to be good and bad, rich and poor, men and women, and God loves them all. God loves them so much that he allows them all be adopted into the family line of the Messiah. You know what? If God had a wallet, your photograph would be in it. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He loves us. He sends us flowers every spring and he sends us a sunrise every morning. And you know what? Whenever you want to talk to him, he's always ready to listen. 
Face it, friends. God really loves us. God really loves you. He loves you so much that he has adopted you and put you in the family line of the Messiah and all the benefits and the inheritance that that brings. All right, so I've made the points. Let me just summarise what I believe this passage is telling us. Two initial things summarised in verse 1, the fact that Jesus is the son of David, which means he is the king of the Jews and the inheritor of the throne of David. But he's also the son of Abraham, which means he can save sinners. Now, if you qualify and you want to be a member of the family, the promise is he'll put you straight in the royal line and you can inherit the blessings due that family line. But I said there's a qualification. What is the qualification to be placed in the family of God? Well, are you ready? Remember, he's a son of David, which means he's a king of Israel, and the son of Abraham, which means he's the saviour of sinners. So we can sum this all up by one brief sentence that's saying, Jesus Christ is the sovereign king whose purpose was to save sinners. The gracious God, the merciful Messiah, the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is also a king. And let me tell you how gracious he is. By looking at some of the list of the names of these ancestors, we can see people like David who committed adultery and murder and a bit of a failure as a father. Abraham, well, he lied about his wife and pretended she was his sister. And if that wasn't bad enough, he didn't just do it once, he did it twice. He clearly did not believe God's promise concerning him having a son, so he committed adultery with his maid, Hagar. What about Solomon? He's in the list. He was a wise man, it was said, but he was a wise man who also did foolish things. As a matter of fact, it's probably not too much to say that for a wise man, he did a lot of surprisingly stupid things. For example, he married foreign wives. He had hundreds of concubines who turned his heart away from the Lord. Yet still, God not only forgave him, but he put him in the family line. He made him part of the family tree of the Messiah. He's listed here. And that, I say, is the work of a gracious, forgiving God. That is the message of the passage. In fact, it's going to be the message of this entire book of Matthew. God wants to forgive you. And in Jesus Christ, he has the means by which you might be forgiven. By simply accepting him as your saviour, confessing your sins, you can come. You can come with boldness before the throne of grace and know the forgiveness of God and know that you have been accepted in the family line of the Messiah and are due the blessings of forgiveness and eternal life. I have a favourite illustration which I do think helps illustrate this point. It was actually a testimony I heard being told by a retired prison officer. As the story goes, there was a prisoner that was in his charge and that prisoner came from a severely disadvantaged background. He was almost illiterate, as were his parents, but during the time he was in prison, he worked with the, the warden on improving his literacy. And during their conversations, he found out what a difficult upbringing he had, living in a very depressed area. But also he found out that he'd made a connection with the local church through a youth club. And that not long before things went off the rails for them, he even occasionally went to church events. But he got caught and sent to prison. 
What actually happened? He was tempted to take something of high value from one of the members of the church that he befriended. Well, he got caught and he was sent to prison and there was no communication between him or anywhere else. Because of his shame and embarrassment, he never contacted anyone in the church or even anyone on the estate where the church was based and where he lived. As he was about ready to get out, with the help of this warder, he wrote the minister of the church a letter, and he said, I understand how you would feel, and I could understand it if you would not wish to welcome me back, so I don't want to force myself upon you. Can I suggest that this is what we do? When I get out of prison in a few weeks, I'll be coming home by train, and as I near the town, I will go past the rear of the church. If you want me to come Jack to church, then please just tie a white ribbon on the tree at the back of the church. So, as I said, he got out of prison a few weeks later, and he got on that train, and as that train slowed down as it approached his hometown, and as he neared the church, he began to get nervous, and he thought, I can't look. So he said to the passenger sitting beside them, who was actually next to the window, We're about to come to a little church, a red brick church, and there's a tree in the back garden of that church. Would you look and tell me if there's a white ribbon tied to that tree? Well, he then closed his eyes for a few moments and he prayed. And just in a couple of minutes later, the passenger chugged on his arm, leaned over and whispered in his ear and said, The whole tree is covered with ribbons. You see, the whole congregation of the church had each tied a white ribbon to the tree. Well, God himself provided a tree, a tree in the garden. And 2,000 years later, it was shaped in the form of a cross. And it is that tree that makes it possible for us and possible for him to accept us as sinners and still yet forgive us and put us in his family, make him part of his royal family, the family of God. And that, my friends, is what this Gospel of Matthew is going to be about. To begin by saying, to be part of the family of God, it's really simple. You just need to begin by saying, you know what? I know I'm a sinner and I know I need to be forgiven. So I will trust in Jesus Christ and then God himself can fill that tree with ribbons and say, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. Okay, friends, that's it for today. I hope you find that message encouraging and it excites you as we head off together on this amazing journey, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. Don't forget there are lots of ways you can find out more and connect with my other ministries and further teaching resources that I make free available. Always freely, always in the public domain for you to use for your own personal study or in the preparation of study materials for other people. Take them and use them with my blessing. But other than that, I do hope you've enjoyed our time together And I also hope that I'll see you back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me, whatever day it happens to be for you, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.